Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Clinical Updates and Strategies for the Long-Term Management of Patients with Multiple Sclerosis. This is podcast number five, Advances in MS Biomarkers and MRI Imaging to Monitor Disease Activity. I'm Dr. Fred Loveland, Saunders Family Professor of Neurology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm joined today by my colleague, Daniel S. Reich. Dr. Reich is a senior investigator in the translational neuroradiology section at the National Institutes of Neurologic Disorders and Stroke, National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Reich joins us here today in his private capacity, not representing NIH, but he is one of the world's experts on MRI use in multiple sclerosis. Danny, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, very nice to have you here. So let's let's start out with, with MRI, because that is the biomarker that's been most useful to MS clinicians, clinical trialists, and even basic researchers uh, in terms of being able to gauge uh, the in vivo pathology of multiple sclerosis. Uh, so let's start. Why is MRI imaging so sensitive to the lesions of multiple sclerosis? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, it's, uh, it, it was recognized really early on in the very early days of MRI um, that MS uh, was almost an ideal uh, disease to study with this new tool. There had been a bit of work on MS done in the 70s using CT scan and computed tomography, which was new then. But when MRI came on board in the late 70s, um, I think uh, the early studies that were done, the first one published in London in 1981, showed very clearly the superiority uh, of MRI relative to anything that had been there before. And, and that the real basis of that is that MRI is extremely sensitive to water and the sensitivity to water, that, that's what we're imaging. We're imaging the protons in water with MRI. And the protons change their MRI signal depending on what they're associated with. Um, and so different tissue types uh, in the brain, gray matter, white matter, uh, blood vessels, um, the water looks different on MRI depending on how you set it up. Um, so water is, is the major thing. Um, and we know, we all know from basic um, medical school, basic physiology that when there's inflammation, which is a big uh, deal in, in, in multiple sclerosis, um, water follows. Um, and so seeing inflammation is, is one of the things that MRI can do really well. The other thing that MRI uh, is really good at is imaging uh, lipids, fat. And of course, in the brain, that's cell membranes and particularly that's myelin. And so myelin is um, an especially strong uh, endogenous contrast agent for MRI. Um, and when myelin is lost, particularly in the white matter, it's extremely evident. So it's, th those are the two major things. It's like a, a confluence of circumstances, but then there are all sorts of other 
other uh, things that are going on in the tissue that MRI is, is really sensitive to um, blood vessels. Um, so uh, blood-brain barrier breakdown, um, which occurs in MS, well known to occur in MS. We can see that really well um, using uh, contrast agents like adalinium. Um, we can see uh, deoxyhemoglobin in the veins and MS pathology forms around veins in small veins in the brain. That's been known for 150 years, but it can be seen on MRI. Uh, and there's a lot of excitement now about the diagnostic potential uh, of that. We can talk about that. Um, iron, a major, major uh, element um, in, in biology and in, in, uh, in the brain in particular, in, in inflammation, but not just in inflammation. Um, and that shifts around during MS. So we're able to see that and see that better and better as MRI technology advances. Um, uh, white matter tracts, which are the basis of disability uh, in MS um, and in all neuro, neuro, uh, neurological disease, um, those can be mapped out with MRI based on the direction that water moves uh, in the brain. Turns out that's associated with white matter tracts. So understanding the relationship between lesions, plaques, and, and, uh, um, and, and functional neuroanatomy is possible with MRI. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why MRI is just uh, close to a perfect technology to assess MS with. It's not perfect though. Then there are ways we can, there, there, we could definitely talk about how it's not perfect, but, but, but for sure um, it, it was absolutely uh, revolutionary in, in, in diagnosing and assessing the disease. And uh, as you know, um, uh, Fred, in, in finding all the therapies that we have now. Right, so, so having been around before, take looking after MS before MRI came in, I could say CT was pretty much useless. Um, and so this was a, a major change. And the other thing that people probably don't realize is the profound effect on clinical trials that MRI has had uh, in, in two regards. One was when the very first agent was approved for multiple sclerosis, the thing that most impressed the FDA panel was not the clinical results, but the MRI results. Um, and, and that's what set MS on this course of having over 20 therapies now, whereas our colleagues in just about every other area of neurotherapeutics have lagged behind because they haven't had this imaging correlate to go along with it. Uh, yeah. And the other major aspect that I'd like you to comment on, because this came out of NIH um, in an earlier time before you were there, was the phase two studies utilizing gadolinium enhancing lesions over a short period of time as proof of principle. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely comment on that. I, I think, uh, you know, we're, at, we're all trying to uh, develop new MRI measures that, that achieve that sort of success that you're referring to. And essentially what, what that is, is uh, in the 1980s when people started studying MS with MRI at, at a variety of places. NIH was just one of them. Um, UC, uh, UCL in, in London, um, Vancouver, a bunch of Amsterdam, a bunch of other places. People started doing frequent MRI scans. And what they discovered very quickly was that the 
um, the rate of new uh, plaque formation um, in the brain in particular uh, was at least 10 times higher than the rate of clinical relapse. And yet we know that the basis, the biological basis of a clinical relapse is the formation of a, a new demyelinating lesion in an eloquent tract. Um, but biologically, uh, what's happening in the asymptomatic plaques is, is similar to what's happening, if, if not the same, probably the same as what's happening in the symptomatic ones. And so the, the insight that came from that is that if you followed relapses, um, it would be a lot slower to assess whether a new therapy would work. But if you follow new plaques, new lesions on MRI, you could do that a lot quicker. And so there was a lot of attention paid toward efficient phase two proof of concept clinical trial designs that were wholly based on the MRI um, uh, in, in, in the 1990s. And, and those were used to find uh, therapies back then, and it's still used today. I mean, there's a variety of different, you know, in detail that the clinical trial designs that people use are, are, are different. There are tens, trials with tens of patients, trials with very few patients, baseline to treatment, crossover style trials. So what we learned uh, from all of those studies um, of small studies using MRI outcomes was that they're incredibly uh, predictive of the larger phase three trials with respect to efficacy uh, of a drug therapy. So we can predict uh, not only whether a new treatment will work, but what the magnitude of the effect is likely to be in large phase three studies. And what that means is the phase three studies are, are much less about efficacy now than about uh, side effects and safety in large numbers of patients because the efficacy, we have a great surrogate marker. It's actually a, a remarkable surrogate marker. I don't think there's anything else in any other field that is 100% predictive of success in phase three for an anti-inflammatory agent. Yes, that's right. And it's a really high bar to, to, to do that for the unmet needs in, in MS like neurodegeneration and, and chronic inflammation, which are really what we have to go after now. So since you bring it up, tell me, where are we with finding a good uh, phase two marker for, for neurodegeneration or progression? Yeah, um, well, we certainly have not made the uh, degree of, of advance with that that, that, that that we have for finding uh, treatments to stop new inflammation. Um, there was a lot of excitement, uh, and I think there still is interest in using uh, brain volume measures, brain atrophy, variations on brain atrophy, like atrophy of the cortex or, or thalamus or spinal cord, um, as a way of assessing neurodegeneration. Um, I think that has uh, a lot of challenges associated with that, not least that instead of being the the driver of the process, like we have with new white matter lesions, it's the end stage of the process that we're trying to prevent. So we're, we're imaging um, what we don't want uh, rather than something we can actually target. Um, so I think now uh, we, we have to really kind of step back and think carefully about what are the major ongoing drivers of neurodegeneration um, that, uh, that are in the MS uh, central nervous system beyond uh, the development of new focal plaques. 
Um, and, and, and we have a, a pretty good idea of some, some good candidates, um, uh, including unresolved inflammation that kind of gets set up uh, uh, in the aftermath of acute lesion development. Uh, you know, our treatments are, are geared towards stopping new, le new, new lesion development, but they don't necessarily uh, resolve the inflammation that is smoldering on within those. Um, that the, there are lots of imaging and pathological uh, studies that show that that's really important. Um, the, the, there's still many open questions about whether our uh, treatments are effective at stopping uh, new inflammation in the cortex and how relevant that is for neurodegeneration, um, the loss of synapses that occur uh, once cortical lesions uh, happen, you know, that's where most of the synapses are. Um, are we blocking those or not blocking those? Uh, is, that, is that the reason why people continue to progress um, after, even after uh, new disease activity is shut down? Um, what is the role of the meninges, uh, which is you know in a, a part of the brain where the immune system is highly, highly active, um, uh, even in homeostasis, but certainly in, in pathology? Um, is that something we can target? Our imaging methods for looking at that are really in their uh, infancy. So um, for me, as technology advances, those really are the targets we, we have to go after. Um, uh, not to mention, you know, clinically really important areas of the central nervous system, like the spinal cord, where I would say our, our imaging is, you know, 20 years behind what it is in the brain now. Yeah. So, so tell me, uh, is there a, a difference in the biologic importance of a lesion that expresses itself clinically versus the, the silent lesions that you said there are many more of those uh, in the brain, at least, um, that aren't expressing themselves clinically? Yeah. Well, um, I think we can we can look at that on a couple of levels. Uh, on the simplest level, we know that if uh, 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 drugs that are effective at shutting down eloquent lesions and stopping uh, relapses are also effective at shutting down the silent lesions, uh, as we've discussed. So in that sense, we think the biological basis of the formation of those lesions uh, is quite similar. Um, but uh, the lesions that don't express themselves at least acutely um, uh, almost certainly contribute to neurodegeneration. One mechanism by which that can occur uh, is if the inflammation does not resolve and then very slowly those lesions expand over time into eloquent areas um, and cause irreversible loss of axons and neurons um, that lead to disability. I personally think that's a major uh, basis of uh, progression, although there are challenges in, in quantifying that. Um, certainly, uh, a lesion that expresses itself eloquently because it's inside a functionally important tract uh, where there is not a lot of redundancy and incomplete resolution of that inflammation, um, sure, that is, that's a different uh, entity because um, you can get acute disability in the context of a relapse that doesn't fully recover. Um, uh, it's, 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 
you know, one, one has to think uh, in terms of the development of that lesion, though, I think, I think the, 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 the drugs we have and the immunological mechanisms that we've been targeting are still uh, similar to those that are signed. Well, when we, when we redid the, the clinical phenotypes of yeah. MS back in, in 2013, we subtyped individuals as to whether they had activity or not. And we defined activity as either a clinical event on, or an MRI event. Um, yeah. And we equated them. We didn't distinguish one as having more weight than the other. Um, do you think that's a reasonable thing? Um, well, I, I think both of those, um, uh, yes, I do think it's a reasonable thing because I think when there is acute inflammation, it needs to be shut down. Those are that, that process that leads to uh, 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 new lesion development, whether or not it's associated with a relapse, um, I don't think anybody would argue that that's a, a good thing. That certainly can contribute to long-term disability. And we see that occurring in, in people with secondary progressive MS. And certainly we see that occurring in primary progressive MS as well. And so uh, I think that makes a lot of sense that in people who are developing new lesions, we need to um, uh, have a relatively low bar for using the sorts of disease-modifying therapies that we know are effective uh, in stopping that. That doesn't mean that they don't have the more uh, long-term progressive um, degenerative processes that are, are going on at the same time. So in that sense, those two groups are probably still um, share uh, mechanisms that need to be targeted. Um, yeah. You mentioned a bit about meningeal enhancement. This is a relatively new concept. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, so I mentioned earlier um, that uh, the meninges are an extremely important part of the central nervous system with respect to multiple sclerosis. Uh, that's been demonstrated well pathologically. One sees, for example, um, the accumulation of immune cells and even the organization of immune cells, B cells, macrophage um, in the leptomeninges uh, around uh, cortical lesions. And there uh, certainly are many who think that those two processes are associated. Um, there have not been reliable methods uh, for imaging that process. Um, one reason is because these um, collections of meningeal inflammatory cells are quite small on the order of, you know, maybe uh, tens to hundreds of microns and our imaging resolution is on the order of, of millimeters. So that makes it difficult. Um, there's lots of, we talked about water uh, with MRI and certainly uh, the meninges, the leptomeninges are bathed in cerebrospinal fluid, which is more or less water from the point of view of an MRI scanner. Um, and so there's lots of signal coming from the water. It's highly vascular. It's hard to image these areas. Um, so, uh, there are, um, you know, what we need to think of new approaches and, and, and very high resolution imaging is promising, uh, with seven Tesla scanning and, and multi-array, uh, phased array coils that allow very high resolution imaging of the surface of the brain. Maybe we will get somewhere, but until we get there, we need to use surrogate markers. And this gets us to, um, uh, the question of, you know, not just can we see what is going on in an MS lesion, but can we see processes that are related uh, to the pathobiology of those lesions? Uh, 
Um, and so, uh, for example, in the white matter, when a new lesion forms, uh, there's a profound alteration of the blood-brain barrier. Um, that alteration per se is not what causes a lesion, right? It's the inflammatory cells and the myelin specificity that causes the lesion. Nevertheless, there is an alteration. We can see that because we inject gadolinium in the veins as a contrast agent. It goes across the open blood-brain barrier, uh, enters the brain parenchyma, and we can see that extremely well on the MRI scan. Um, so potentially, we thought uh, back in, in 2014, 2013, we started some work where we were looking at gadolinium passage into the meninges on the hunch that maybe inflammation in the meninges would operate the same way. Um, and we described in 2015 in a paper um, how people with MS uh, and by a ratio of almost two to one in progressive MS had small areas of gadolinium enhancement of the meninges um, that in the pathology that we had in a, a, a couple of cases uh, seemed to be associated with the myelination of the cortex. Um, so that sort of kicked off a bit of a, um, uh, a new area of imaging in MS. Um, the finding has been replicated, uh, but for, for, for me, I really think we just scratched the surface of the ability to look at the meninges um, there are a lot of open questions about this meningeal enhancement marker that we described, uh, including that there tend to be very few um, foci in any one individual. They are stable over time, unlike a white matter, new white matter lesion where the gadolinium enhancement resolves. Um, so where we eventually came to with this marker is uh, thought that it may be useful for uh, identifying patients who have inflammation in the meninges um, but I don't think there are data to support using it as a treatment outcome measure per se uh, in the context of clinical trials. Uh, but there is certainly ongoing research uh, into the um, uh, permeability uh, characteristics of meningeal blood vessels. Okay, so while we're on to new things, tell us a bit about some of the, the new MRI metrics, things like central vein and paramagnetic Sure, happy to talk about those. Um, so the central vein sign is pretty exciting, I think. Um, uh, and that gets to the question of MRI for diagnosis. So we've talked a lot about MRI for treatment monitoring um, and for looking for new treatments in the context of clinical trials and for understanding the biology. Um, but we know that uh, despite MRI being a critical test in our diagnostic criteria for MS, the McDonald criteria, um, we still make mistakes. And the studies show that, that the mistakes may be up to 20% of the time. And that's a real problem, particularly as our therapies are uh, more and more immune suppressive uh, and have more and more serious side effects despite their higher efficacy. So we need to be extremely careful about getting the diagnosis right. Um, so uh, in, the, in the 1800s, um, Charcot and others recognized that MS lesions uh, throughout the brain uh, form around small blood vessels. Um, in fact, the, the eponym Dawson's fingers uh, that is associated with the distribution of MS plaques in the brain, um, that is because of the orientation of blood vessels that radiate uh, out of a drain into the, the ventricular uh, area. Um, 
And, uh, and so with MRI, we have the ability, particularly with strong magnets, three Tesla and uh, seven Tesla, to um, detect uh, veins because they contain deoxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin, the iron in deoxyhemoglobin um, leads to what's called a susceptibility effect and loss of signal on the MRI. And so now we can see really, really well with optimized techniques um, the, uh, the, 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 the geography of an MS plaque uh, as it forms around small uh, blood vessels within the brain. Um, and uh, study after study has shown that MS uh, is really unique um, among brain uh, diseases in having this topography. Um, so uh, um, in terms of, of uh, a new marker that may uh, uh, close to specifically tell us whether or not white spots on a brain MRI are related to MS, this is the most promising thing we've had in a very long time. We're still learning how to use it. Um, I'm involved, for example, in a study that's being led by Dan Antoneda at the Cleveland Clinic and Nancy Sykot at Cedars-Sinai. It's an NIH-funded study um, that will prospectively assess people who are being evaluated for MS if somebody thinks they might have MS based on the imaging or the clinical uh, picture and to say whether or not the central vein sign will um, uh, allow an earlier and more accurate diagnosis. So people will be followed for two years from, from uh, the time of first presentation um, and uh, central vein sign-based criteria will be compared against non-central vein sign criteria. And so I think at the end of this study, we will know how uh, much we can reduce the misdiagnosis. We will, we will have a pretty good idea of that and we'll have data to say how best can we use the central vein sign. So I'm very excited about that. I think that will make a major impact uh, in our uh, ability to accurately diagnose MS and treat people appropriately. And do you need to look at the susceptibility weighted images for that? Yes, but you need to make sure that you're collecting susceptibility weighted images with high resolution uh, and uh, the pixels or what we call the voxels um, really need to be uh, isotropic. They can't be like rectangles. They have to be like squares. And the reason for that is because the veins in the brain don't really like to run uh, in the planes of imaging, in the axial, sagittal, and coronal planes, right? They, they run the way they run. And we need to be able to reformat and um, uh, re-slice our MRI scans in order to optimally see this kind of target sign uh, the central vein sign that we're talking about here. So that's really important. We, we know we need to achieve imaging resolutions probably on the order of uh, 0.7 millimeter um, on the side of each of these pixels. So when people talk about high resolution MRI, they talk about one millimeter. This is uh, two to four to eight times finer than that. But uh, we and others have pioneered methods that can do this in just a couple of minutes. Uh, and cover the whole brain. So it's technically feasible, but this is not what you get when you just turn on susceptibility-weighted imaging that's sitting on the scanner. The scanning manufacturers are beginning to implement the new techniques into their scanners. So I'm hoping this will become more widely available, particularly as neurologists and neuroradiologists clamor for the ability to see the central vein sign. It's important that the, the manufacturers understand uh, that what exists now is not ideal uh, for visualizing that. 
But the technique, the basic technique is, is in fact, susceptibility weighted imaging. Um, you asked also about the paramagnetic rim. Yes. Um, and that's another uh, susceptibility-based technique. Um, and that's one of the techniques we have now for looking at the, um, uh, the presence of iron uh, in and around lesions uh, in the white matter. Um, and it turns out that the iron uh, that is present uh, is sitting inside inflammatory cells. So this is now emerging as one of the powerful techniques for imaging chronic inflammation um, in the MS brain. Uh, and what we know, we don't know that much yet about um, how those lesions change over time, whether they repair uh, slowly, whether they get worse. We have some preliminary data to suggest that those are the lesions that expand over time into healthy tissue. Um, uh, they represent about 20% of all MS lesions um, in pathology and MRI series. Um, but the most interesting thing that we've learned, uh, and others who have studied this, is that they seem to persist regardless of the disease-modifying therapy that is applied to stop new lesions from forming. And so what that's telling us is that our 20 disease-modifying therapies, even the best of them, are not effective in shutting down the chronic inflammation that is a major driver for progression. Uh, and I'm particularly excited about the ability of the paramagnetic rim sign um, potentially to be uh, a proof of concept imaging measure um, that will allow us to develop new therapies aimed at chronic inflammation that drives neurodegeneration. Might it also distinguish those patients who are going or are destined for a progressive course? Um, so we don't have enough data to say that, but we think that that's um, uh, that that is likely. Um, I don't think it's. But what I would say is I don't think it's the only way that you can go from uh, kind of acute MS to progressive MS. I think it's one one major contributor to that. That's that's that's. That's my current thinking on this. I think there are other drivers as well. So it certainly is possible that we will eventually be able to shut down this chronic inflammation, resolve the paramagnetic rim lesions, maybe even promote repair of those lesions. Um, that's the pipe dream. Um, but will that fully stop progression? I doubt it. Will we fully stop progression without doing that? I don't think so either. So I think it's a really important target. Um, and I think it's the one that is currently most tractable, uh, both from the imaging and, and possibly from the biology side. We know a fair bit about the pathology of these lesions, the cellul cellular and molecular components of those lesions, and potentially some drug targets that will need to be developed over time. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Danny Reich. Thank you to our listeners for joining us for this clinical update and strategies for long-term management of patients with multiple sclerosis. This was podcast five, advances in MS biomarkers and MR imaging to monitor disease activity. We're delighted to have had Dr. Reich along with us, and I hope you enjoyed this activity, which was supported by an independent educational grants from Biogen and Bristol-Myers Squibb and provided by Academic CMA. Danny, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.